Brother Pat and Brother Charlie are handing out uh, the final handout for our mini-series on leadership, or biblical maturity and leadership. And this is the final iteration. It's changed each time, so it's going to be organized a little bit different. And if you're joining us for the first time today, we're kind of in a unique uh, time period in our church. We're ramping up to nominating new deacons. And so I wanted to take the opportunity to teach on biblical leadership, what it means from a biblical perspective uh, to lead. And so uh, once you have the handout, or if you already have it, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the snare, a condemnation rather, of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil." Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their household well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And also Titus, Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. This is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. So what we're doing is essentially trying to define, as your handout says, biblical maturity and leadership. Because if you look at these different qualities, um, it's been said at, at a conference uh, me and some of the leaders in our church uh, went to is that this list of qualifications is remarkably unremarkable. This is what any Christian should aspire to. This is the qualifications for leadership in the household of God are basically saying, be a mature Christian, because this is what we should all want. And so what we're doing, what we've done the last previous weeks is we've looked at how these qualities have shown themselves in the lives of two different individuals. We started with John the Baptist, and then we looked at the Apostle Paul. And now we'll conclude this mini-series with a look at the Son of God himself. So before we do that, though, I need to address kind of a, uh, an objection off the bat. Jesus, as our example, is difficult, right? Has anyone ever told you, well, why can't you just be like Jesus? And the answer would be, well, he's the son of God. He's perfect. He does not have a sin nature. So 
It's very nice of you to say, why can't you be like Jesus? But there are obvious reasons why I can't be like Jesus. And so when we hold up Christ as our example, who should be our number one example, and the person we look to most, it can be difficult. Because we see him in his glory. We see him reigning and ruling as the Lord of all creation. We see him in his perfection and his perfect substitute in our place. Never sinned. And it can be discouraging. At least it has been for me. But he is the standard. We're supposed to be like him in every way. So what I want to do, and and you can tell me at the end if I succeeded, I want to show you that the example of Christ, especially as we look at him as our high priest, as we kind of begin to reintroduce ourselves to this theme of Hebrews, Jesus' example is actually more welcoming. When we look at different people throughout church history and in the Bible, I think their examples can be discouraging sometimes. But when we look at Christ and his example and his leadership of the church and how he serves, I think it actually invites more encouragement. So let's begin. I've rearranged uh, the qualifications there, and there there are nine of them, and there have been each week, um, in the order of Hebrews. So we've been preaching through Hebrews, and I'm going to try to use this message as reintroducing us to the main themes of the book of Hebrews. And so they're in order as these texts occur in the letter to the Hebrews. So if you want to, go ahead and turn to Hebrews 2 and look at verses 10 through 18. And you can just remain in Hebrews. I'll be referencing some of the other verses that you see there. But if you want to remain in Hebrews, we'll just go straight through to the different passages that relate to Christ. So the first qualification or or aspect of Christ's leadership of the church, how do we see this Not greedy, but generous aspect of him. Hebrews 2, verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Let's skip down to verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. How does this show or underscore Jesus's generosity? There are many blessings here in this text, uh, verses 10 through 18. We see Jesus uh, dying to redeem us. He's delivering us from death. But in this phrase here, this is in verse 11, he is, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Is that a stretch to look at that and say, this is how Jesus is generous? And then if you look down to uh, the end of the passage, it says that he is bringing many sons to glory. So. Many of y'all have probably encountered a situation where someone passes away and there's a big inheritance or there's property. And if you ever want to see or test the quality of family relationships, just get an inheritance discussion going. Who gets what? Who gets how much? Jesus is the heir of all things. And what he's doing through salvation is bringing us in and making us co-heirs with Christ. He deserves it all. He is the firstborn. He gets all the glory, all the power, all the dominion. And he is the only one who has the right to insist on having all of it. And yet, in salvation, he makes you and me fellow heirs. That it is no loss on his part, his part to divide his inheritance among millions of those who call on him as Lord. He's not greedy. He's generous. He gives it away. And it's not only that he's making us co-heirs and sons in the sense that we all are sons and get a portion of the inheritance. It's not just giving us some treasure. Um, He is giving us himself. He's giving us his own self and his own life. 
for our good. Look at verses 17 and 18. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. It's not just as if he's writing us into the will. Okay, if that's all it was, we would be very grateful. But he has accomplished this through his death. That to make it possible, to make it just and fair for us to be written into the will, it required His death in our place for our sins, His blood. So not only were we His enemies and He has now made us family members, not only were we rejecting His grace and He has now made us heirs, we were guilty. And He has made us innocent so that we could receive the inheritance. The best help is not giving us some treasure. You don't have to be wealthy or have a nice house or have a lot of cool stuff in order to be as generous as Jesus because Jesus had none of those things. Think about that. So when it it comes to considering how we're to follow Christ's example, you think, well, how can I be generous? I don't have a house. I don't have any money. I don't have any influence. Jesus wasn't rich. Jesus didn't have his own home. Jesus didn't run a company. He didn't have a lot of cool stuff. He had none of those things. And yet, in the days of his flesh, he was the most generous person to ever walk the earth because he is bringing us in. There's a sense in which Generosity, when it's only the world's goods, can be misleading. You can see this in John chapter 6, the other passage reference here. Do you remember the story? Jesus feeds the 5,000, and the people are so excited, so happy, they actually rush across the lake in order to grab him and make him their king. And he says to them, you came not because you saw the signs, not because you're believing in me, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And then he says to them that he sh- they should rather labor for the food that doesn't perish, his own body and blood. So Jesus offers the very best thing, and it's not the world's goods. It's not the loaves, it's not the food, it's not the nice house, it's not the comforts of life that are the most important ways for you to be generous to others. You have the gospel And for your brothers and sisters in Christ and those who don't know him, that is the most generous thing you can do. So I hope this is encouraging to leaders and those who want to lead. Be generous and follow Christ's example. And don't wait for an abundance in your own life to be generous. You have the treasure in jars of clay. The gospel, the power of God for salvation, that which can encourage, that which can save, and that which can bring us to glory. You have it. It has been made yours. Give it. Bring others in. And just behold your great high priest. Just look at him. Look at your great high priest in this. This is what he does. He became like us in every respect so that we can be in his family so he can help us on our way to the day of adoption where he shares in his inheritance with us and this is the great hope look at what he does for you he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also with him graciously give us all things it's been made yours in christ because jesus is your high priest so the next point here, we can go to Hebrews 3, uh, verses 1 through 6. Having his house in order. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly dwelling, a heavenly calling, rather, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, 
and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. As I said before, Jesus didn't have a physical house. He wasn't married to a person. He didn't have biological children. So how can we look at Jesus as an example of what we're being called to as leaders and as mature Christians to have our house in order? He's supposed to be our great example. So how do we look at Christ and see this managing his household? We honor the Lord by seeking the kingdom with everything we have. That's that theological summary if you see in the handout. Manage and use all your possessions for the sake of the kingdom and lead those under your care into the kingdom and to the king. If you think about this, you run into this question a lot. How can Jesus be our example? Because Jesus never grew old, right? He was taken into heaven at age 30 or 33, one or the other. So how do we look at Jesus and know how to age well? Jesus wasn't, uh, didn't have biological children, so how can I, a father of two children, look at Jesus and see him as my example of how to be a good father? Jesus was, wasn't a boss of a company, but a Christian boss should be able to look at Jesus and know how they can be a good Christian boss following the example of Jesus. So you have to know your Bible well to know how to make the dots connect so that Jesus is always your example. A 30-something-year-old Jewish man from the first century is your example no matter where you are, what your gender is, what your profession is. He's your example. So this comes up a lot. You've got to know how to work it in. So we see in this passage in Hebrews 3, 1 through 6, that Jesus was faithful over all God's house. And we also see this, uh, an example of this in John's gospel. John 2, verse 13, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it. Uh, 13 through 17, that is. The Passover of the, Jew Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables and told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus had zeal for his father's house. We need to get in our minds what houses are most important. We have our own houses, most of us. And if you're, even if you're a child, you live in a house, you have a household. But the household of faith is the most important house. And Jesus has zeal for the household of God. And that's the more important household. When we live our lives, when we interact with people, when we come to church, we should see what should be in our minds, what the lens that we should see is not all of our houses dispersed across this area, but the household of God existing forever, millennia old. So let's look at uh, Hebrews 3, verse 6 again. What does he say? But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Are we supposed to follow Jesus' example in this? I would argue absolutely yes. Zeal for the house of God should consume you especially if you want to lead or if you're aspiring to lead. You should have a zeal for purity in the house of God. You should have a frustration against prayerlessness in the church. You should have a zeal for prayer in the church, an anger against false teachers, a holy passion for the people of God to be able to worship God, a zeal for a clean and pure heart before God. That's directly from this idea of how Jesus what he does when he comes to the temple. That's all rooted in those zealous positions of his heart. All the time? Not necessarily, and I'm not even sure a person could feel all of that at once, all the time. 
But I, I want to offer an encouragement to those who want this zeal and these holy passions and even frustrations, but you don't see it as much as you'd like to. It does not come from you. This kind of zeal for the household of God, this desire to see purity and prayerfulness and worship in the household of God, that comes from the Spirit. That's what happens with Jesus. He is consumed by the zeal for God's house. So what does this have to do with my household, my family, my room, my time? I would argue it has everything to do with your family, your household, your room, and your time. We're supposed to seek first the kingdom. And that means all of your use of your houses, your job, your money, your time, and even those in this room who are very young. How you use your room is an opportunity to care for and build the church of God. It's not all about passion and zeal and whips. I included the passage in Matthew because right after he does this the second time, he actually does this twice. The first Passover he goes and then he goes up to the next Passover and he cleans the temple this way twice. And the second time, right after he does this, he begins healing people. He begins healing the sick, ministering to those who are hurting. Is your home, is your sphere around you, your room, is your room, your place of influence, whatever that is, a place of spiritual truth and healing? It can be. Your room, if that's all you've got, even if you share a room with a sibling, that place around you that you have influence over can be a place of healing and truth. And that's what it means to have zeal for the household of God. So to leaders and those who aspire, is this the effect you have on people? Is this what you're trying to work towards? The health, the purity, and the healing of the household of God. Is it shown in your own household? And bringing others, especially of your own family, in. And just to everyone here, just behold your great high priest. Just look at him. Sometimes when you look at the church, the state of the church in the United States especially, it can be really discouraging. Right? Is that just me? Or We see false teachers. We see worldliness creeping in. We see all sorts of weakness and frailty throughout but we have such a great high priest and zeal for the house of God has consumed him. And he always works. He always intercedes for the children of God and he is always working as his father is working. He will build his church. We have such a great high priest. Do you want to join him? You want to join him in that work? of Bringing people in? Jesus is also above reproach and almost uh, redundant to say so with everything we've covered. Look at Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a great high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus is above reproach. And it almost seems silly to say that about Jesus. We know that he never sinned. It says this here clearly. He was tempted in every way. We were yet without sin. And I'll just read the other two passages here. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. You know how easy and how much easier it would have made Pilate's life to find some fault in Jesus if he could? He would have satiated the Jews. If he, Oh, you stole a piece of bread. It must have been a really expensive piece of bread, so we'll put you to death. That would have made Pilate's life so much easier. But he couldn't find any fault in Jesus. And Peter says of him in 1 Peter 2, verse 2, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. 
And this is where it can seem difficult to look at Jesus as our example of how should we be above reproach because, great, Jesus never sinned, right? So that's a really difficult bar to live up to if you're trying to be above reproach. But he still should be your example because as even he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The example, I would argue, the examples of other fallen men can be crushing expectations more than the example of Christ. We could list several names that uh, for me are just amazing to think about what they did in their lives, what the Lord did through them. And if I try to hold myself up to that standard, I'm going to be discouraged. But I would argue Jesus lived a life that was more given to being imitated or easier to follow than even their lives. That may seem odd to say, not in the sense of never sinning, obviously, because if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself. But think of this. Jesus' life wasn't grand or extraordinary in the world's standards. He never ran a large business. He never made a ton of money. He never started a seminary or a Bible college. He never went to a seminary or Bible college. He never traveled in his ministry more than 100 miles from his hometown. He never wrote a book. He never changed a law. He never changed the political structure. He never won a Nobel Prize. He never got a doctorate. He never discovered a medical cure for any disease. He did not end world hunger, and he did not end human slavery, and I could go on and on and on and on. He didn't do any of those things. And here's the point. He could have if he wanted to. He could have done all those things and so much more. But that's not the point. The point of his life is to be meek and humble And to be a sympathetic high priest so that you can look at him in his meekness and his intentionally limiting himself and being humble and lowly and say, I can follow him. He's my example. He's the one I want to be like. So, I can feel even odd asking this question. What makes Jesus' example of being above reproach so important and so helpful? He was faithful to his Father. He never did any of those things I read off, but what did he do? He was faithful to his Father. And might that be your goal, brothers and sisters, that as cool as all the things might be that you might want to do in your life, that the most important thing for you, the heartbeat of your motivation in your life is, I want to please the Father. I want to please the Father. And if that is really your heartbeat, you are well on your way, brothers and sisters. We need less people who are running around trying to change the world and more people who are just trying to please the Father, whatever that means. And I'm talking about holiness here. Life according to this. The simple, basic Christian life. That's what pleases the Father. To leaders and those who aspire to be leaders, being above reproach as Jesus was means keeping the main thing the main thing. Not insisting on ideas of grandeur, but realizing that even the Father's plan for Jesus was to live a plain and holy life in weakness. Your inadequacy is part of the point, brothers and sisters. And also to everyone in the room, behold your great high priest, one who intercedes for you and helps you. He has endured oppression and temptation and trials and has taken on weakness and frailty of the flesh so he can be gentle and caring and empathetic as your great high priest. Was Jesus a humble servant? Or how do we see Jesus' humility? Hebrews 5, verses 1 through 6. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed 
to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed to him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The humility of Christ is one of my favorite teachings and things to think about. When we came up here to interview last year in October, where we preached from was Philippians 2. It talks about Jesus' humility and that his example of humility is what we're supposed to imitate in our lives as followers of Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but rather made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant. Being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that's the basis of his exaltation. We know that. But much of the glory of the incarnation is precisely this, that God the Son would be willing to take on flesh, humble himself, condescend, and be a servant. I want to offer an encouragement to those who are timid about leadership or feel like you're behind or don't have it all together. To be like Christ, to follow his example as a leader, and even as the perfect, he's the perfect bridegroom and perfect friend and perfect son and perfect man. To follow his example is simply to be humble. If anyone would follow me, if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross, deny himself, and follow me. What you want out of your life, what your parents want out of your life, what you feel obligated to make your life about, to give your family a life that you feel like you owe them, to be told by the culture how fulfillment is found, and what the good life is, all of those are the enemy's ploy to make humility like Jesus practically impossible. If what you're doing in your life is trying to extract from it the things you want, humility like Jesus is impossible. What do you want your life to be about? Here's the answer following Jesus' example. I want my brothers and sisters in Christ to know the love of Christ and to hold fast to Christ. And I want those who don't know him to come to know him. This is love. This is leadership. This is humility. This is maturity. Let Christ be your example. Let his humble example set the agenda for your life and your role as a leader. Young people in the room, those who are timid, don't think this leadership thing is for you, maybe. The most beautiful and remarkable thing about Jesus' ministry to us is that he made himself lowly. Remember the story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet? One of the most precious and remarkable stories of the Son of God is when he just takes off his outer garments, wraps a towel around his waist, takes a basin of water, and washes dirty feet. And that's what he shows us. This is leadership. Have you seen what I've done for you? So you should do for each other. Behold your great high priest. Jesus humbly waits and endures trials and makes himself nothing and suffers all before God makes him high priest. The only one who had any right to claim any position of leadership or authority in the church waits and suffers and endures and makes himself nothing before he's appointed. Was Jesus self-controlled and dignified? We'll just go to the very next verse. 
Hebrews 5, verse 7, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. In Isaiah 53, 7, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And when Jesus is arrested, Judas leads the soldiers to come and take him. And what do you find him doing in that moment? Do you find him trying to defend himself or prevent his arrest? He asks that they would let his disciples go. And he stands there resolute, knowing that this is the will of the Father. But it wouldn't be very helpful for me to say something like, well, Jesus was self-controlled and dignified, so go do it. Right? Obviously. Jesus was self-controlled and dignified. Of course he was. Even as a child, he was self-controlled and dignified. So what exactly is astounding and helpful about his example of self-control and dignity? It is this, that he maintained his composure and trust in God through suffering. The Lord may very well be bringing difficulty and trials and suffering into your life so that you can have the opportunity to be like Jesus, enduring trial. With loud cries and tears, he prays to the Lord who is able to save him from death. So to leaders and those who aspire to be leaders, be encouraged by Christ's example. There is an idealistic view of a leader and someone who serves that's very strong and powerful and resolute and never has any issues or problems. And that's more owing to classical Greek expectations of the Stoics. If you don't know what that means, that's okay. But it's not from the Bible, okay? Because our great leader, our great high priest, in the days of his flesh offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears. It was suffering for him. It was hard to maintain trust and a resolute hope in God. So just behold your great high priest. Even though he was perfect, never sinned, he still had to endure a life of sorrows. And this was also, he could really and truthfully say to you, I know and I understand. Was Jesus proven? Did he have a Proven track record of faithfulness in service to the Lord. Well, obviously, and we'll just read the next few verses to see. Hebrews 5, verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. If we were to ask, was Jesus proven? Did he, ask, did he have a track record of faithfulness to God? We would obviously say yes. You have to. If you never sin, you obviously have a proven track record. Because the answer would be like it, it has before. Of course, he's the son of God. Obviously, he's proven. Obviously, he has a faithful track record. But let's ask a slightly different question. How has God chosen to show Jesus' proven track record. And it is this way, as we just read, Jesus had to start from scratch. He had to go back to level one and live a life from day zero all the way until his death, learning obedience. He was given no form or majesty. When you see paintings of Jesus, there's sometimes like an aura or a brightness around him. He didn't have any of that. He didn't have an inside track on holiness. He was not worthy of additional attention based on his appearance. He didn't have a resume or education or noble birth that people would have recognized. No, Jesus' proven track record and stellar reputation was built Brick by brick in his own life, day by day, 
through obedience and faithfulness, and primarily through his words. From James two, uh, 3, verse 2, For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. So it's his words, it's his faithfulness to the Father, and it's also, and you'll see this theme come over and over again, his suffering. So that as the song that's popular now that I love, uh, is he worthy? Yes, obviously he's worthy. And he was always worthy and he will always be worthy. There could never be a moment of time throughout all the universe that Jesus is not worthy. But how did God choose to show for sure, for certain that he is worthy? Through his endurance of suffering on your behalf. So to leaders and those who aspire to lead, don't be discouraged or downcast by frustrations. The Lord is seeking to build your proven track record through your hope in God through trial. Jesus intentionally limits himself, took on weakness in obedience to his father so that he could eternally point back to his proven track record of faithfulness through suffering. And it is on that basis that he has made our great high priest. He was willing to endure all of this so he could serve on your behalf forever as your great high priest. Did Jesus show, this is the next one, did, did he aspire, did Jesus have a zeal and passion to devote himself fully to the work of God? to the good of the people of God for eternal rewards. Well, again, of course he did. And we've already seen that with the zeal for God's house that consumed him. But I also want you to see it in Hebrews 6, verses 17 through 20. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inter inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone, a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. He goes as our forerunner. The idea here is that he is forging the way. That he goes through all of this to prepare and open the way for the people of God. And that he runs as our champion, overcoming the enemy, overcoming death, pleasing the Father and making this clear way into the inner place behind the curtain where he is now. And you can also see it, you don't have to turn there, but Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Hopefully you know this passage and love it. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, who's already gone as a forerunner, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus endured what he did so that he could bring us to where he is in heaven, and he does it for the joy that is set before him. D Jesus doesn't just suffer and go through all this and serve, and it's all like, well, it's good for its own sake. He has a reward in mind, and that is you and me with him, seeing his glory, rejoicing in that glory forever. And because of that joy that he sees from afar, from the other side of the cross, he goes to the cross and endures the suffering so that he could bring us there with him. He aspires. He, he does these things out of zeal and love. He, he sets aside the shame. He doesn't count it as significant in, he, in his mind. He despises the shame and he sees the joy. And so for you, you want to serve your brothers and sisters, you've got to see the joy in it like Jesus did. It can't be out of obligation. It can't be just because, well, Jesus died for my sins and 
there's the gospel, and that's somehow important, and judgment day is coming, so i got to make sure I do the right thing before that happens. Joy in God. Faith is seeing that you will be rewarded. Not necessarily here, not your best life now, but in the hereafter, that you will receive the unperishing crown of life by devoting your life to the good of your brothers and sisters, just like Jesus. Was Jesus faithful and pure? Obviously he was, he never sinned, we can keep saying that, but this is the theological idea here. The three men that we've looked at now, John the Baptist, Paul, and Jesus, they didn't have wives and families, so so how can we look at this husband of one wife idea, this purity, and see it in these three men, particularly Jesus today? Um, This theological summary I've given you, honor the, the glory and sanctity of marriage even with your life. If you're married, be a one-woman man, and if unmarried, be consecrated to the Lord alone and pure. So I want you to look at Hebrews chapter 8. I won't read the whole thing because it's kind of lengthy. Hebrews 8, beginning in verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would not have been an occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, and then he lists what is from Jeremiah 31, what we call the new covenant. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. They did not continue in my covenant. And I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. When you read, this is actually the Greek version of it from uh, the Greek Old Testament that the author had access to. If you read the Hebrew version, the version that's translated in your Bibles, if you go to Jeremiah 31, you'll see that God says, my covenant that they broke though I was their husband. What Jesus does as our great high priest in mediating a better covenant is he's essentially betrothing us to him again. He's bringing us back into fellowship with him. We have broken the covenant, distanced ourselves from him, even though he acted towards us as our husband people in general, the people of God in the old covenant, and he is enacting this new covenant so that we can be faithful to him. And you can see this also in Hebrews 9, 11 through 15. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of sins, how much more will the blood of Christ, through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. What you and I have done, what every person has done, we were created for God, created in the image of God, made to worship God, and when we worship idols and when we love other things more than God, that is spiritual infidelity, spiritual adultery. If you've read the story of Hosea and Gomer, you know what I'm talking about. And many times when you read about God's forgiveness, sometimes it can make you feel uncomfortable. Like, can God just forgive things like that? Like You see murderers and terrible people in the Old Testament being forgiven. But every time I read the story of Hosea and Gomer, I don't feel uncomfortable. Because I know deep down, and I think we all know deep down, that that is what we have done. And we have hope. We 
see God giving this image in Hosea's redemption of his unfaithful wife, that that's me. And if God shows Hosea that this is how I'm redeeming Israel, that I can be redeemed too. Because I have done that. I have loved another. That's what idolatry is. That's what sin is. Deep down, we know, according to Paul in Romans 1, we deserve to die. We're adulterers. But Jesus, in enacting a better covenant, writes his law on our hearts and re-betrothes us to him so that we will be faithful. That's the hope. He makes a new and better covenant. And not only that, he buys us back from the slavery that we've gotten ourselves into. And he cleanses us from the filth of our unfaithfulness. By his broken body and shed blood. It's not like he just he goes to the justice of the peace again and he's got a better marriage vow. He dies, sheds his blood so that we can be pure and faithful to him forever. This is how Jesus honors the glory and sanctity of marriage and is the example to all leaders. The redeeming work of Christ is this. His love for his bride, his redeeming love for his bride is the gospel. That's how we're brought in. And those who would lead in the household of God, those who want to lead others, must understand and see the gospel so much that that is the basis on which they lead their families and minister to brothers and sisters. We all want each other to be faithful to our divine husband. And to everyone, just behold your great high priest. You can begin to see how Jesus as our high priest begins to overlap with all the images and analogies of who Jesus is and what he does for us. He's our king. He's our priest. He's our husband. He's our leader. He is the sacrifice. He's the Messiah. He's the word. And all of these things interrelate in his role as our high priest. He doesn't just sit up in heaven and rule as great high priest. Because that would be his right through his ministry to you as your great high priest with a better covenant. He remarries you and gives you his spirit so you can be faithful forever with him. And lastly, was Jesus a man of truth? And it's might send a chuckle like, of course, he was a man of truth. No deceit was found in his mouth like we already saw. But look at, uh, go back to the very first, the very first passages in Hebrews. Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is the word of God. And not only that, Jesus is the definitive revelation of God to you and me. He is a man of truth. But how else do we see that in his ministry to us as our high priest? Go to Hebrews 10. And I know we're going past where we are in Hebrews, so you might be feeling like we're in the future, but this is all the Bible and you've had access to it this whole time. Hopefully you've read through Hebrews multiple times. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 4 through 9. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. So of course Jesus was a man of truth. He never spoke a lie. He always said truth. But more than that, he came to do God's will that was written of him in the book. 
There's something even deeper here than the fact that Jesus merely was perfect in his speech and spoke truthfully. Jesus could have come and done any number of things, like the things I listed earlier. He could have done amazing things. And even sometimes you see in his healing and his miracles, he tells people, don't spread this around. Because these miracles, these signs can work as a distraction against what the Father has sent me to do primarily. And that is to redeem a people for God. He did exactly what was written of him in the book. All the prophecies that specifically lined out exactly how the Messiah was to come and suffer and die and rise on the third day. That's the emphasis. And of course, there's a lot more things that Jesus did that we could think about. I mean, we're coming up on uh, Christmas, so we all start thinking about Mary and the Holy Family. Why do you think it is that we don't have any, really, information about Jesus for his whole growing up? We have one story. Jesus in the temple. And that kind of underlines the point I'm making, that his point, the reason he's here, is to be about his father's business. Don't you think they could have asked Mary? And James, like James, James was the leader in the church in Jerusalem. They could have asked him, hey, tell us some stories about Jesus. But even James, when he writes his letter, isn't telling us all these stories about Christ. The point is that he did what his father had commanded him to do that was written of him in the book. That was the point. And anything else is a distraction. And I would say the same thing to you. And this is why his example, Jesus' example, is so much Help so much more helpful than looking at specific men and their different ministries and great things that the Lord did through them. Because your goal, brothers and sisters, should not be to go do great things and change the world. It should be, I want to do what is written of me in the book. You know what God has commanded of you. You know what the fruits of the Spirit are. You know what Jesus says, blessed are those who... You can fill those in. You know what it is. You know what holiness is and what righteousness is. And we get ourselves so derailed when we think that holiness means something else than what is written of us and commanded of us in the book. Does the Bible, what God writes and commands you in his book, does that set the agenda for your life? Especially those who would aspire to lead Want to lead? You know, verses 5 through 7 can really stand for you too, or should. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. You've given me a body. You've given me a life. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will. O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Might that be your heart's desire, brothers and sisters? I've come to do God's will. And it might be really unpopular, and it might be really mundane. It might not be glorious. It might not be my world-changing plans that I have or all the things I'd like to do. I've come to do God's will. And that's it. Everything else can be a distraction. And often is. So we'll end with this. Behold your great high priest. There is no one else who has lived in the history of all the world who had the right to do anything else that he wanted to do in his life. It's his. The universe is his, and he upholds it by the word of his power. So if he wanted any kind of life, he could have demanded it, and it would have been rightly his. We don't have that right, but he did. And what did he do? I've come to do your will, not come to do my will, but the will of God. So we'll end with this. John 12, verses 44 through 50. This is one that's referenced there on the handout. I'd actually do want you to turn to this. John 12, verses 44 through 50. Jesus cried out. I want you to hear your great high priest speaking to you, crying out to you right now. Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, 
but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to, de- what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. He doesn't operate on his own authority, but the Father himself has given him exactly what to say, exactly what to do, exactly what to speak. And this is his commandment to you. Regardless of where you are in your life or what you think about Jesus, his commandment to you on the authority of the Father is to believe in him. Receive the forgiveness of your sins. This is your high priest. And this is the covenant that he mediates. He invites you to join all of the blessings of heaven. All the blessings in the heavenly places through belief in him. Might that day be today for you. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for Jesus and his example. I pray that we would remember what we've seen of the Son of God. That we would not be like those who see the clarity of the Word, uh, who we are and who you are, and then walk away forgetful. Pray that you would encourage us to lead, to serve, and to sacrifice and endure suffering like Jesus. We pray these things in his name for his sake. Amen.